2: Only one word that matters in the business in the early days, and that is the word survival. survival.
0: Whilst you're alive, throw yourself 100% into whatever you do and make the best of this wonderful life that we all lead.
3: Hello, and welcome to the Boom podcast from Virgin Media Business with me, Nikki Beatty. As the Boom competition revs up for the 2017 season, we're following in the same spirit with entrepreneurial tips and advice. From some of the most inspiring business minds in the world, with startup stories, success secrets, and a few admissions of failure all in the mix. Joining me in the studio, I'm delighted to welcome two business founders who've shaken up their sectors with disruptive thinking, building companies that are not only huge successes in their own rights, but by their very nature, help others to grow too. My first guest was a first mover back in 2006, joining the worlds of tech, Ticketing and events in an inventive online platform. A long distance relationship starting from his hometown of Paris with co founders in San Francisco quickly blossomed into a company with a global reach. Today, connecting the world to live experiences in over 187 different countries. That's 2 million events and around 48 million tickets processed per year. Named Eventbrite, I'm very pleased to welcome the company's co-founder and chief technology officer, Renaud Visage. Good to have you with us, Renaud. Welcome.
1: Great to be here. Thank you.
3: So on the Eventbrite platform... You can find, I can find, everything from music festival tickets to conferences, we can enter marathons, gaming competitions, even air guitar contests. And before things get too serious and business-like on the podcast today, I wanted to quickly ask you, what's the weirdest event that you've been to via Eventbrite?
1: So it's not one that I've been to, but in 2010, when we looked at our global inventory of events to uh, try to extract trends from it, we realized that we had more than a thousand festivals around bacon in the US. And I've always wanted to go to one, bacon. I didn't know there were festivals around it, but we had a thousand of them. So that was... A very interesting realisation and I've always wanted to go to one sense.
3: Well, you need to go then, don't you? I'm
1: sure it's amazing. I love bacon too.
3: Do you? Okay, good. It would smell delicious, wouldn't it?
1: I'm sure it smells delicious from miles around.
3: Yeah. And joining Reno is another entrepreneur in the business of events. This time we're talking pop-ups with a company that's helped reshape the landscape of retail in the UK by connecting brands to exciting temporary spaces across our cities. But they're no longer pop-ups confined to what you might think of as dodgy food stalls and bric-a-brac markets. Instead, they're a thriving ecosystem for startups and established businesses alike to test new ideas and meet new customers. The online platform Appear Here has been at the heart of that revolution and I'm excited to welcome its founder and CEO, Ross Bailey. Hello, Ross. Hi. Thank you for being here today. No, thank you. Well, we should mention that in addition to the UK, Appear here has also recently crossed the channel to add locations in Paris. So you've got shared ground with Renault there. Um, I take it the French love pop-ups as much as we do then, do they?
0: The French love pop-ups, I think right now it's a bigger deal in London, though it's really starting to take off in Paris. Paris is a little bit harder to get access to space. So I think that, you know, as we're growing in Paris, we're becoming only more and more sort of needed in that city. But, I mean, the talent coming out of Paris and the brands coming out of Paris that are wanting to come to London is also extremely exciting. And it's great seeing those ideas travel.
3: As we're talking events and pop-ups today, later in the show we'll also be hearing from one business that went from a temporary hobby to huge success. Accidental restaurateur Yanni Papoutsis will be explaining how he made the journey from flipping patties at festivals to growing a group of the most sought-after burger restaurants around. That's meat liquor. But first... Ross, Appear Here is less than four years old, but it's already made a huge impact, received millions of pounds worth of investment. People obviously buy into what you're doing and you've been called a digital game changer for the high street by the likes of The Guardian. Your clients include everyone from the fresh startups that I mentioned to really big names like Apple, Coca-Cola, Benefit and Jamie Oliver. So before you set up Appear Here... What experience did you have of the pop-up industry or even letting commercial space?
0: Well, you know, when we started, the pop-up industry wasn't even really a big thing. I think I'd read about like Marmite or someone launching a shop and that was really it. In terms of experience that I've got, it's zilch. Um, You know, I left school at 16. Um, I went and did different projects, but we launched a peer here and I came up with the idea when I was sort of 19. So I didn't have much time to to build up a, a deep knowledge of whether it's real estate or or pop-up retail. But what I did do before we launched is I set up my own store. So found a little tiny shop in Carnaby Street four or five days before the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. Mm. Took it over, created a brand called Rock and Roll. So I designed these t-shirts in four or five days. I'm not a designer, but sort of picture the Queen with bowie stripes to her face. Um, long story short, a few days into launching the shop, it got banned by Buckingham Palace. That made it even more popular. We had hundreds of people queuing outside. And that sort of hype meant that I got a phone call from a massive US sportswear brand. And they said, look, it's the Olympics coming up. It's 2012. And they went, you know, can you help us? And I was like, God, if somebody's calling this like 19-year-old kids mobile, then this is a big problem that people obviously need to solve. Same time, companies like Airbnb, Collaborative Consumption are all taking off. And I guess I went away and went Could this be a solution to that problem?
3: So you were in no way an expert, but you felt something. You had a gut reaction to a situation. Where did the ideas come from? Was it seeing a gap in the market, knowing that there was a market in the gap? What was it?
0: I guess it's all of those experiences. And when you look back, you connect the dots more easily. But I think at the time, like every single newspaper was going, vacancy rates are the highest ever. And every other article was saying the high street's dying. And then also it's pure naivety. You know, I looked and went, <laughs> hang on a minute, this, I, I just assumed that, you know, it's the jubilee coming up. There's this whole exciting moment. Oh, wouldn't it be cool if you didn't have to buy souvenir tat and there was something quite rebellious and interesting as part of this national moment? Oh, you can run a shop for a week and you just couldn't. Mm. And it was, well, why can't you if there's all these empty spaces and all these people with ideas? And I mean, it was pretty
3: much that simple. I know a similar question to you then. Do you think that you need to be an expert to cause disruption?
1: Absolutely not. I think you have a great advantage when you don't know the boundaries. And you're a good example of not knowing, not being part of the system. So trying to ask the right question, why can't I just get this space for a week? And similarly, we were not expert in the event business when we started Eventbrite. We saw a big gap in the market on the small and medium-sized events mm-hmm. they use mostly paper, email, Excel, maybe posters on the walls to advertise their events. And we were seeing self-service technologies taking off, capturing different markets like the payment industry, and thought we could connect the dots. So bring a payment provider with a very simple self-service solution to empower anyone really to in a few minutes to start selling tickets for their event.
3: But so when you say we, this is what fascinates me. Eventbrite was born back in 2006. It's a partnership between you in Paris at that point, co-founders in San Francisco. That's completely different continents, literally an ocean between you. How did that come about? How did you know each other? How did you know You'd be the right fit. Just explain a little bit about that, would you?
1: So, to, to make it even more complicated, my two co founders are actually a couple and they had met uh, three or four months before we started the company. Right. So, a friend introduced us actually. Um, Kevin had the ID for Ivan Bright and uh, my co founder. He uh, asked his entourage if they knew anyone technical who could help them build a site and start. Um, developing the platform, and a friend of mine recommended me. We met a couple of times, and then we just started working together. Like We just bonded a, around the idea of creating a very simple platform for the event industry. We, I think, all had the hope that it would be as big as it became, but it's a step-by-step process. You start, you experiment, you see if you like each other, I and mean, especially when you don't know your other co-founders, you have this period where you get familiar with the ways different people on the team work. And if everything goes well, then we keep going. And it's been 10 years now.
3: Well, congratulations on that. Russ, in terms of advice that you might give somebody listening right now who's an aspiring entrepreneur, in terms of working out whether an idea is ready to turn into a business, is there a point that you can measure? What would you say to somebody listening?
0: I think there's two things. And one of those is I said like it was pure naivety and it was a real simplicity of having this idea and empty shops and ideas and why doesn't this exist? But what I would say is that then I did go away and I spent months researching and looking into things and and I understood that you know the whole way people rent space hasn't changed for hundreds of years and it's a long drawn out process with all these different intermediaries and agents and people involved that meant that it was really expensive and actually the structure meant that renting short-term space didn't make sense. And as I did this, I also understood that lease lengths had gone from 20 years the year I was born to now four or five years. So you start to understand the dynamics of the market. I understood that, you know, it was a massive market and then actually businesses like Etsy had millions and millions of sellers. And I think you look at all of that and you go, actually, this makes sense. So although I was naive in the sense of going, why doesn't this exist? I think it's then about very quickly trying to become an expert and spending all those hours to make sure that you do understand the industry so that, one, you don't waste time. So, you know, you go away, you do all this research, but then on the complete opposite of that, I think you've got to take action. And I think that you can sometimes get obsessed in the detail. So once I understood the market, it was, well, hang on a minute, whether it's launching a shop or whether it's straight away going out to talk to investors or whether it was just telling my friends and different people that actually I was going to do this mm. and being really open with it and sharing it with everyone. Because I think, first of all, people want to help you. And secondly, there's this real power, I think, when you say things out loud, because it's like, actually, I don't want to look like I'm just a talker, so I've got to go out now and, and do it. And I went out and I found a friend to help me code it, and I found other friends who wanted to be involved from, you know, whether it was marketing or whatever else it was, but it was like, actually, we've just got to get on with it. So... Go away, research, become an expert. But on the flip side, make sure that you take action as quickly as possible.
3: Now, I'm just interested to know, you said you left school at 16. Why did you leave school at 16?
0: <laughs> um, so You
3: sound like you've been, you know, highly educated. That's yeah, a judgment so, call from my point of view.
0: I'm great actor. No, no. Um, <laughs> no. So I think what happened is, you know, I loved school, but I was one of those people that I just can't sit still. I've got a lot of energy, I get distracted very quickly. Uh, I probably find it quite hard to concentrate. Mm -hmm. And after going into sixth form, after a few weeks of being there, I was just like, do you know what? I've got friends at university. They've been there for three years. They just go out and have a great time, which is great. But at the same time, it just felt like there was a long period of like another five years of education before even you'd get to work. And I felt that that could probably can be condensed a lot shorter.
3: So you weren't leaving because you just wanted to have a good old time. I'm just thinking of young people listening to this right now who think, right, well, I feel like I don't want further education. I don't even want to do A-levels. If I use Ross as an example, look what he's managed to achieve. But you must have had some sort of mission in terms of what you wanted out of your life.
0: So do you know what? There were two things. I think, first of all, when I was at school, I was always... Going to Costco and buying up drinks and then selling them at lunchtime. Or, um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I was doing all the the typical, (laughs) like, cringy uh, things and, like, becoming a dog walker and getting all my mates to do it. And so, mum and dad would come home and I'd have, like, 10 dogs and they'd be like, we don't own one. Um, But then, you know, I started with a friend, we'd rent out nightclubs and we'd do these underage nights. And they ended up getting eight hundred people, a thousand people turning up each month, and suddenly it became quite a big business. And we started doing them in lots of locations. And while this is happening, you're sort of sat in sixth form, and there's somebody explaining to you what a PNL is, and they're spending maybe three different lessons over several hours explaining that. And you're a bit like, okay, let's like just do it. Like if it goes wrong, who cares? But I don't want to sit here for hours. Right. And I guess that became, and I don't think everyone's like that, but you know I just got bored quickly and I thought you know what I just want to go out and do it and I knew that I'd work hard and I was lucky to have parents where I think my mum was very worried and was like no you've got to go to uni but my dad was sort of like look as long as you
2: start working every
0: day and you put in as much effort if not a lot more Mm. than if you were at sixth form then I don't mind it's your choice and you know that was very lucky to have.
3: Reno, what were the early hurdles for you in terms of, I mean, obviously there was distance perhaps, but maybe that doesn't matter in the age of technology. I'm looking, I suppose, for the keys to your popularity, but the hurdles you had to cross.
1: And distance was never a hurdle. We had a very nice cycle where... I would code during my day, they would review my code during the night, and the next morning I had a whole fresh list of things to do. So it was actually a very efficient cycle. Mm. I mean, like any startup, the key thing at the beginning is finding these people who are going to be your champions. And for us, it was many different types of event organizers who loved the platform so much and felt that it totally answered their need that kept pushing us to their friends, to their networks. And once you have this broad base of evangelists, I would call them, mm-hmm. then you know you're onto something because when people talk about your product, say how much they love it, even though it's missing all these things that I want you to build tomorrow, <laughs> they still use it every day. And that's a testament that you're onto something and that you have a real product that serves a critical need.
3: Ross, thinking back to the inception of Appear Here, how old were you?
0: yeah 19 or so.
3: Yes. So and you were the youngest person in your team, is that right?
0: Yeah, up until a few months ago actually. So so um,
3: he, so how old are you now?
0: I'm now 24. Yeah. So, so we in- actually started the company when I was about I'd say, you know, probably we raised our first funding when I was 21. So I think although I had the idea mm. and I say like it took action, I spent a lot of time researching it, but also spent a lot of time meeting with people where everyone hated the idea. Everyone thought it was terrible. Every single investor said I needed a co-founder. I think I probably spent six months going to these tech meetups every single, like twice a week, trying to find a co-founder who was a CTO and just going, you know, I I still believe that this is possible. And I think that's the the point as well, that sometimes if you meet every industry expert and they all say there's no need for this and you need to go back to university and do a chartered surveying degree and then investors are saying you need a co-founder and then other people are saying there's no market. You know, to keep going is quite um,
3: some people hard would say or it's, stupid. Well, they'd <laughs> say it was foolhardy, wouldn't they? Most people, but you. But maybe it is, as Renault described. It's that itch that just has to be scratched, and that's when you know. Was that what it felt like for you?
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think there was a couple of ideas, and I did a few things during that period after the store, but I kept coming back to it. And I just remember there being a time where I went, "Do you know what? I, I'm just going to do it now." And it was funny that suddenly going back to that point of taking action and being very upfront about it to everyone and saying, look, I'm doing this. That um in a couple of months we'd raised angel money, then we had a team, and then suddenly I think if you're passionate about something, and I think if you convince yourself that it's going to be big, mm. I think that's infectious. I think you know, that's when you suddenly get friends on board and people go, do you know what, this is worth a a pun, let's go for it.
3: Well, so we've got a sense of your motivation and the fact that you bore easily means you've got to keep thinking, got to keep moving. Did you have any mentors?
0: Not as a... I didn't have any, like, as a kid or as I got older. I think, you know, I went out and I had no shame and maybe that's an age thing, but I was... You know, Now I look back at some of the emails I must have sent people and I cringe, but you know, <laughs> I emailed everyone and I went out and I went and met the top CEOs or the top guys because I just pestered them. And I think you've got to be careful of that. But I also think you can get away with that a little bit when you're, you're young. So I think I went and found mentors and I right. went and found people's advice. But going back to that comment before, I think if you're really passionate about something... If you go and meet people today or somebody comes to me and they go, do you know what, I'm going to do this thing and they talk to you in a certain way with a certain energy, it's very hard to not look at them and go, I believe you.
3: So what is your advice, Reno, in terms of somebody listening, a young entrepreneur looking to extend their network and get advice? What would you say they should do?
1: I mean, start with networking. I think there's a lot of, so many events. Uh, we have thousands of events, tech events, business events, workshops. Uh, places On, on, on where... his
3: platform, obviously, everybody. Exactly, Let me on eventbrite, of course. But...
1: <laughs> and it's the first place. Create these connections. If you're looking for a CTO, go talk to people who are in tech. Like, find run, the one person who's going to be your buddy for the next 10 years, yeah. building it up with you. If you want to reach... Famous entrepreneurs then go to their talks and ask the right question and connect with them afterwards. And I think we're all very open to giving feedback. Uh, we learn a lot through our experience. Uh, And giving back, I think, is a great way to um, be part of the ecosystem and to really encourage the future entrepreneurs into getting started.
3: I've been so impressed and really it's heartwarming since we've been making these VOOM podcasts to see how many entrepreneurs really do help each other. Uh, I don't know what I assumed was the case, but it's it's really heartwarming. I think it's finding
1: kindred spirits, Mm. the ones who understand that things are not set in stone, that there's a lot of things to improve around the world and that if you put enough energy behind it, Uh, you can be very successful.
3: And let's talk a little bit about the tech side of things, because both of your businesses run on beautiful online platforms. So Appear here has a really effective portal for brands to browse and book rental spaces. Eventbrite, of course, has a place for customers to discover events, as well as a back-end and apps for events organisers to sell and manage ticketing. Renaud, you are the CTO as in the technical brains, one would assume, behind Eventbrite. The platform's original coder too, is that right? Yes. Yes. As you've grown the business then, what would you say have been the main technical challenges that you've faced?
1: The event business is a very interesting business. It's not like traditional e-commerce where products sell pretty regularly throughout the year. Maybe Christmas has a big peak. Events can sell very quickly. And even in the early days, I think the first one was in 2008, we had someone use the platform for a very high-selling event. And we were just not prepared for that. In Within a few minutes, they were selling thousands and thousands of tickets. Oh, and wow. I think at the time, we had maybe three servers. So these are the type of challenges that you face as you grow a company. We just never thought that this would happen so early. So when it did happen, it was a very valuable lesson that we have to anticipate a lot of these needs. And we, of course, would have loved for all the big events to come to our platform. And that's what we prepared for in the next few months. So we took a good look at our architecture implemented a lot of changes to make it a lot more scalable to be able to handle these high selling events.
3: And also I'm thinking now we just want the easiest user interface possible. I want to be able to use my phone to do everything. I don't want to have to be shrinking and growing a page in front of my eyes and missing a bit and having stupid little pull exactly. down menus. I think that's so do you the work challenge. on this all the time?
1: Yes, I think that's a challenge in technology. It never stops. It never rests. Habits change. I think people using the smartphone, everything is a type of way they expect the same type of experience mm. for all of their products, whether it's the remote for their TV or the heater or all these things that used to be controlled by very complicated devices have to be simplified. And same for our website. I mean, we try to make, make it as simple as possible. Yeah, but
3: I want to talk to your website. I just want to go,
1: exactly. you know, hey,
3: event rights. <laughs> You want it
1: to be more intelligent, easier, more intuitive, have functionality that makes sense for the the age we live in. And that's our challenge as technologists, is bringing all these technologies together in a package that makes sense.
3: And Ross, how did you get the right team together to handle the technical side of a peer here?
0: Well, you know, I found one of my great friends. He started it with us and then we grew the team and now we've got an amazing technology team. Um, I think a lot of our stuff, when we were building the technology, was also about, like, behaviour change Mm. because we couldn't find a single site where there was retail space available to book. It just didn't exist. There wasn't even listing sites where they had pricing. So what was lucky with our business is, from a technology point of view, in the early days, we weren't reinventing the wheel. We were applying what existed in other industries to a new industry. But what we had to use technology for, and what we also had to use, you know, just general product and brand for, is how could we convince landlords and real estate owners to to make this work, that this was simple, that this was intuitive, that this wasn't a hassle. How could we use technology that meant that, you know, if you don't use a peer here, it averagely takes six months to book a space? So if you see a space tomorrow and you want that space, by the time you go through that process, the fastest it will happen is around six months. On a peer here it now takes three to six days. Wow. So how do you build technology to replace those human functions, to make things standardized, to make things happen fast and quickly. A lot of the time the technology existed. What we had to question is, if we release this now, if the, is the timing right? Do people understand it yet? Do we have to build something far simpler today mm. so that somebody, you know, their behavior moves to a certain part so that we can then release the thing that we really want to release? And I think when you're doing an industry from the beginning that hasn't been done before, and I'm sure Eventbrite had this as well, There's a lot of things where you're sort of having to go, oh, we want to do all these things, but we've got to focus on the the very first step, not just because of our tech team or because of bandwidth, but because will the user actually understand things if we release everything today? And that was a really interesting lesson.
3: Both your businesses rely heavily on getting other businesses on board. So what are your top tips for selling B2B?
1: I think trust is critical in this day and age. Uh, you have to believe that the platform you're dealing with is a reliable partner. I think that's what people look for. Uh, we've spent a lot of time thinking about trust. How do we handle all the bad cases? I mean, several companies in the Valley have had to deal with that Airbnb with people trashing your place when you're not there, Yeah. filming porn movies in, in your space. So they oh, had to handle about all these that. things. <laughs> Um, Uber with cases of rape and things like that. So how do you make things right when things go wrong? I think is a big part in establishing trust. And we've invested a lot in both in the te- on the technology side to prevent fraudulent activity, to kick off the spammers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right. to create an experience that when you come to Eventbrite, you expect a certain level of quality. Uh, trust and reliability, reliability that we've built over the years.
3: Ross, I can see you nodding. Um, yeah, your, I mean... Your advice, B2B? I agree
0: with Renan. I think that trust is hugely important. I think that customer service is actually massive. I mean, as soon as you're doing B2B, you know, you need to have that ability that somebody probably, even if it still is tech first, can pick up the phone and there's a higher level of customer service for those businesses and those pro tools, the final thing I'd say in terms of actually practical advice for going out and selling to those businesses is I think like, shiny stuff matters. And what I mean by that is I think that as soon as you start selling to businesses, the product has to look beautiful. I don't think they're as creative. They don't necessarily like a consumer would imagine where you're going. Mm-hmm. I think they, they sort of want it to work now. And the second thing is I think that they want to see that the best use you. So if you do do Apple and Google and Kanye West stores, they're going to go, oh, well, we want to be part of that. We've ticked the box. Nobody's going to go to that person in a meeting. Well, why the hell did you use that company? And I think it's making sure, and it, it probably goes to a certain part back to trust, but trust that these are the best guys that we can be using. So I think focus on actually some of that shiny stuff, because that means that the business is buying.
3: And when you guarantee that shiny stuff and that whole look and that whole attitude, does that mean automatically the landlords get on board?
0: Yeah, I think one the landlords get on board, I think if they see that, oh, hang on a minute, these guys are using you, that works. I mean, I'll tell you a very quick, funny story because it's due to technology. You know, as I said, no commercial real estate company, especially in in, in retail, was was doing online bookings and every single business. I mean, every one of them said there is no way in hell you're going to manage our payments. And I'm trying to sit in these meetings and explain how secure it is and how we have built this and this and the tech can do all these things. And they just weren't listening. They didn't care. And I remember I had a meeting with Cootes, right, which is the Queen's Bank, and went, look, I know we don't have that much cash, I know we don't have whatever, but I want you to do our bank account, and this is why it's so important. And they eventually agreed. And then it was funny, because I'd go into these landlord meetings, and I forgot about the tech. I just went, so you pay on our platform, and it gets managed by an account with Coots and then it pays free to you. And they all said yes.
3: <laughs> because Coots.
0: Yeah, and it was bizarre that just by saying this name yeah. meant that they all did it. And, you know, we did convince and we and that was possible. But today, when, you know... We're the first guys to do online payments for this industry, and 95% of every booking that happens every month is fully transactional online for an industry that's very traditional. And now it's because of great tech, and you don't need to say anything because other people do it. You just say, well, this big landlord does it, and people Mm -hmm. follow. But at the beginning, it's crazy to think that that behaviour change happened because we convinced Coots to give us a bank account.
3: You're listening to the VOOM podcast from Virgin Media Business with me, Nikki Beatty, alongside Renaud Visage from Eventbrite and Ross Bailey from Appear Here. Now, as we're talking pop-ups and events, we also wanted to give you an example of a great company that's grown from that sort of temporary situation into a fully fledged success. Perhaps the most common type of pop-up are food establishments. But whilst setting up a stall at a market or festival is a fairly quick and inexpensive way of getting a food business going, growing things further becomes a tricky and highly competitive business. One man who knows all about it is accidental restaurateur Yanni Papoutsis, founder of Meat Liquor.
2: My name's Yanni Pakutsis and I'm one of the co-founders and the creative director of Meat Liquor. Meat Liquor started on Halloween in 2011. It started off as a short-term restaurant, a couple of years, and it's still going strong five years later. We now have 10 sites. It started originally back in 2008 from an idea I had out at Burning Man after having I found myself with about 100 kilos of meat without any refrigeration and only a small pan to cook it. So I started cooking burgers with it and then came back and bought a burger van. Uh, The first burger van got vandalised. The second one got stolen. And then with my business partner, Scott Collins, we started up a... Nowadays, you would call it a pop-up. In those days, we actually called it a guerrilla diner, called the Meat Easy, which was above a pub in New Cross. Uh, that lasted for three months, and the rest, I suppose, is history. I think Meat is individual in that it really did just grow organically out of what we do best. We serve things on metal trays without cutlery and greaseproof paper and with kitchen mold because that's kind of what we are. The music's a bit too loud because we like loud music and we're all a bit deaf, Lights are a bit too dark because you don't really want to see us in daylight. But if we tried to do silver service, it wouldn't work because it's not us. And it's fun. We like being loud and having a drink and having a dance and having a party. And that's what we do best. So that's why it works. I never really consider myself an entrepreneur. I suppose nowadays we kind of consider ourselves accidental restaurateurs. I was in production for ballets and operas for about 15 years, uh, touring all around the world. And I used to subsist effectively on fast food because that was the only thing that was available to buy when we'd finished work at about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. So I was quite knowledgeable in it. And when I bought Burger Van, it turned out that, together with the experience in festivals and my love of cooking, I had a very specific set of skills. It wasn't really taking the plunge at that point. I mean my first burger van, I had two thousand pounds in an ISA that's all I had. And I it was making no interest or anything, so I bought a burger van and a car to tie it with for two grand. And I was doing it on my days off as a hobby. Because I had a crossover period of a, almost three years, to be honest. And it was only when I had so much work going on with the meat wagon that I decided that I could finally leave my job. And that was very important for me because the expense, the knowledge that you have to have to actually make a go of it in this business is such that it's very hard just to cut off everything you're doing and then sink everything into this. You do really, I think, need a lot of hands-on experience about all the things that are gonna go wrong because I suppose probably 90% of this business is making sure things don't go wrong or being able to react and think on your feet and basically make opportunity out of adversity. Whether that be in a mud-stricken festival, or whether that be in a restaurant where all the pipes have just burst, there's a hell of a lot that you never really consider you have to deal with. I never thought I'd end up knowing as much about plumbing as I do. I suppose, I mean, we've had huge successes We've won awards for the Meat Wagon, but they're actually not the things that I remember at all. It's the most of the the real moments that have changed everything we've done. The ones that I look back on are moments where things have gone really terribly, unforeseeably wrong. And as I was saying earlier, by creating opportunity out of adversity. For example, the van gets stolen. I think the next day, 24 hours later, we were in the back of Scott's pub with a a borrowed gas-powered griddle cooking in the snow with somebody holding umbrellas over the griddle. And the good feeling that we got from the public, from our customers, for doing that was hugely important, I think, in the loyalty that we've built up. Um, having loyal customers is extremely important with regards to branding it's something that i don't think you should think about too much as a startup business we for example we had the meat wagon then we had the meat easy which didn't even have a web page or a twitter address it was just a hashtag on twitter meat liquor the name we came up with about a week before it opened then we actually specifically tried not to do, to have a brand. So our, our second bricks and mortar venture was Meat Market in Covent Garden Market. The third one was Meat Mission over in Hoxton in the old Christian Mission there. So it was only when we started going outside of London to places like Brighton and Leeds that it became apparent that meat liquor was what people wanted, what people knew about the branding was accidental. And again, it it came out of us not actually having a name for a restaurant a week before we opened. So I think that there's a lot of people who will spend too much time not doing something because they can't think up of a cool name or they think that all of those things need to be in order first. They really don't. Also, I mean, it took us four years to even get T-shirts. And there's restaurants I know that have actually folded before they've opened, but they've got all the t-shirts, but they don't actually have the core of their business in place because they've spent too much time thinking about how they're going to sell, not what they're going to sell. One thing that is quite interesting in my specific industry is that when you are starting off as an independent trader, you get a lot of kudos for doing one thing and doing it well, whether that be soups, curries, Burgers, kebabs. However, as soon as you cross over into a bricks and mortar venue or into anything else, you need to be doing everything well. And those same people who've given you kudos for only doing one thing when you're an independent market trader, for example, will actually then be pulling you up on not being able to provide chips with your burger. Why aren't you doing wings? Where's your cocktail selection? So, it's very important to realize people will always judge you on your worst attribute. And that again, comes back to being flexible and also evolving and evolving to meet the needs of the customer. I think the most exciting thing about this job is that we don't really know what the future of this business in it changes every single day. My job varies during the days from day to day, from week to week. And for me, that's a really exciting thing, the not knowing. For some people, it would absolutely drive them mad. But it's actually a core part of this business. It's a very, very dynamic industry. And more and more industries are having to cope with that dynamism, the difference in tastes, the way the the information and tastes and trends flow, not just around the country, but around the world. And some of them are... Like dying so they spark really, really brightly and die out. some of them grow and last longer, um and being able to take advantage of those and knowing which ones to ignore is quite important, but you need to have a quite a tight, flexible organisation in order to do that.
3: Yanni Papoutsis, founder of Meat Liquor with some great advice there. Starting his business from before pop-up was even a buzzword. And if you like your burgers and cocktails, do seek them out at one of their locations in London, Bristol, Brighton and Leeds. You're listening to the VOOM podcast from Virgin Media Business. I'm Nikki Beatty, and I'm joined in the podcast studio by Renaud Visage who is co-founder and CTO of Eventbrite and Ross Bailey who's founder and CEO of Appear Here. And we've been talking about events and pop-ups. Gentlemen, we've been talking a lot about being successful today. If we were to look at things from a slightly different angle, what has been your biggest, funniest, most memorable business failure or flop or mistake today? Something that you've really learned from, because as we all know, um, mistakes are the only things that really make us glow. Glow? Grow. <laughs> <laughs> Mistakes make us glow and grow. Uh, Ross, you continue to grow. Um, what's been your biggest mistake, though?
0: Wow, that's a really difficult one. I always find this question so hard. And it, and I also feel that if you can't answer it quickly, it sounds really arrogant. But
3: I can go to Renault first if you want to have a think.
0: I have the same answer.
3: <laughs> what, what, what I was
1: gonna,
0: yeah, I mean, what I was going to say is, I think yes. that, yeah, it, you feel really arrogant not saying something, but I, And I was thinking about this the other week because I thought, well, actually you end a lot of weeks feeling like you have failed, but when somebody asks me that question, I never seem to have an answer. And I think that's because I'll give one example is a few weeks ago, I was in L.A., and obviously most of our we've got an office in London, an office in Paris, so they're on a different time zone. And I'd woke up in the morning and I saw all of my emails. And I was reading some of the subject lines and it was okay, like, hey, you guys have won this award or we've just hit the best month's target. And there were all these real highs where I was like, wow, this is amazing. And in between those emails was maybe a resignation letter or this has just gone wrong or, and lows where I was like, God, this is unbelievable. And I suddenly thought to myself, wow, this is a 24 hour day. And I think that, you know, you've just got to somehow wade through it. Mm. And, and, And I think to run a business and to run something that, you know, is a tech company and and fast growth, there are going to be extreme highs and extreme lows. And I think my job as an individual to myself and to my team is when there's really highs to cut them out and not get too excited. Mm -hmm. And when there's real lows to cut them out and to try and stay in the middle. And the reason I say that is I think that if I think maybe that's something that you naturally do or you force yourself to do to get through those days and, and those to be weeks. a leader, presumably. And to be a leader. And I think that, yes, there's failures every single day and every week. And I can think of individual ones yesterday and, and last week and last month. And to me, I carry a notebook everywhere and I finish probably five months. And each week I'm writing down, like, what's gone wrong, what's gone right, what I want to learn. And it's about constantly learning from them. But I'm not someone that dwells. And I think that we are where we are and there's a long way to go. And I'm just at the beginning but I'm learning, I'm having fun, I work with the best people and I've got it wrong, sometimes i got it right.
3: OK, Ross, refusing to acknowledge any one particular failure but knowing that there are highs and lows. reno what about you? Is there any memorable, uh, either a failure or something that's gone wrong, something that you've learned from?
1: I think one uh, particular one that comes to mind where we learned maybe the power of the platform through failure mm-hmm. was in before barack obama got elected uh, as president georgetown university decided to host a raffle to win tickets to see future president obama at georgetown and distributed it so well that everybody in georgetown applied through <laughs> <to> our website <laughs> and really cr- crashed completely the the uh, even by website for several hours because right. we were not ready first of all to handle a raffle that yeah. was not the intent of our platform mm-hmm. and to handle a, a, a raffle of that size so that both this failure i think of not being able to serve that event we had to kill it after all and switch them to another platform that could handle this type of um questionnaire told us that there was a real appetite for our product so its unintended consequences, of mm. failures. I think that uh, helped us learn a lot about what we could become as a platform.
3: That's fascinating. What's next for appear here, Ross?
0: So we, um, you know, we're working a lot on technology for our landlords and things like that, so we can get access to more spaces, so that great entrepreneurs, great people with ideas, can can get those spaces. But to us, the real focus is, I guess, now on that next step like we look at people like eventbrite with huge admiration and if you know it could be sat there with a similar business in you know five six years times it would be it would be amazing so to us it's how do we take this international and how do we continue to you know find amazing people uh, and,
1: and keep them
3: and for eventbrite reno
1: when we launched the platform our uh, first customer base was small and medium-sized events and as the big be- Platform became more popular. We got more and more of these bigger organizers starting using uh, Eventbrite for their ticketing. So that's one area where we've invested a lot of on, in the, on the technology side to be able to cater to the m- much larger events of this world. Uh, live entertainment uh, in sports. Uh, these are two areas that we think will be probably pretty uh, powerful for Eventbrite.
3: That's nearly it for this episode. Before we go, I wanted to open things up for a few general questions. The first one is about work-life balance. So, Renault, if we were to look at your CV, in addition to you being CTO at Eventbrite, you're also a prolific investor yourself. You you're a mentor to other startups. You are a regularly published stock photographer. You're constantly travelling the world. And it seems from the outside looking in that you don't stop but is work-life balance something you're conscious about do you make an effort to balance
1: yes i'm very conscious of it that's something i always wanted not to sacrifice Mm. the the life part i think work is very important to find something that's compelling that's exciting to you to go to every day give your best find a project that's so amazing that you are doing it almost as a hobby Mm -hmm. i mean i learned to program as a hobby. That's, I, when the web took off, I started buying books because I liked the power of it so much that you could write a few lines of code and the next day you had a thousand people looking at it. That wow. was pretty amazing. So that was really a fun thing for me to do and it became my job. But I was trained as a civil engineer. and had nothing to do with computers. But
3: well, well, what uh, do you do in the evening? What do you do to relax? When do you have your downtime?
1: Mostly when I travel, I think that's the cut that you need every year, or what, that I the, need personally. The to, eight
3: hours on a flight to San Francisco lying down flat.
1: That, that is good too as well. <laughs> <laughs> Anywhere where you're disconnected, I think, today mm. is a place where you can think, you can no, relax. They've all got Wi-Fi annoyingly. Yeah, I, yes. don't, I don't want that. No. I, I like my quietness.
3: Yes. Uh, Ross, how do you let your hair down? Any tips as well about that work-life balance
0: I agree with Renna. I think during the week, it's so sort of like, it can be so crazy. But I think what I now do, unfortunately, is like take a weekend away with friends and we've started going like this year. I went to um, Jordan and random places like that. And I think suddenly going and discovering new places I've never been and you know walking around and seeing amazing sites gives you that uh, opportunity. To turn off a bit
3: and have perspective, presumably, but also
0: have perspective, yeah. And yeah. I think to realize that there is so much stuff that's far bigger than what you are working on and, and more important. Um, and but at the same time, I think if you love what you do, you know, you are up for it. And I think that you've got to be careful as well with work life balance, with putting too much pressure on yourself. Because I I do remember that I'd sometimes be like, okay, well, like, I've worked so crazy during the week, I've got to have a weekend, and then I just start Monday stress because I hadn't you know done enough stuff. And I actually think that, you know, if you do have to do a bit of work on Sunday or a bit on Saturday, I'd much rather that and have a better week than, you know, put an additional pressure on mm-hmm. myself that I need to have a balance. But I think it's about getting away. And I think, you know, also when you talk to other companies and you get involved with what they do, hearing other people's problems and stuff stops you thinking about your own, which is quite fun.
3: What is the favourite part of your work, Ross? I
0: think there's two things. I think one is there's some businesses that are about, you know, how do you make it easier for somebody to, Buy a jumper online or whatever it might be. I think what excites me is, you know, whether this, you know, we're, we're aiming for the stars and hopefully it goes really well. But even if it doesn't, I think what's exciting to us is that every single day somebody is making their dream happen or mm. their idea happen because of we exist and because we've made it possible and because we've unlocked these spaces and, and changed the way something's been done. And a few weeks ago, this guy came through the platform, young guy, books a market store in Spitalfields, and he makes £1,500 in a week. And to him, this is a dream. And he sends us a letter to the office. And we don't get letters often, but we, we get them occasionally. And it was like, just want to let you know this was like Christmas for me and it's Aww. changed my life. A few weeks later, he goes back on the platform and he books a space within Topshop. And in his first week, the guy makes £20,000 in one week. He then makes that every week for six months. And he's now rolling it out.
3: Wow! Um,
0: and he's got a team of 20 people now from just being him. And you look at someone like that and you go, wow, that's incredible. And he gave us all these bracelets that he made to say thank you. And he was like, you know, if you guys didn't exist, this wouldn't be possible. And I think when you feel that actually, not that you've just built a company, but that somebody else is saying to you, do you know what, if you guys weren't here, I wouldn't be able to do what I loved. Mm. I think that really gets me up in the morning. And the second thing is I think today, you know, people can buy more than they've ever been able to buy. And what people are excited by is experiences and personal connection and and real world interactions and whether it's Eventbrite or whether it's Appear Here I think what's exciting is this new future I think is about where you go and who you see and what you do
3: Do you have a favourite part of your job? Final question of the podcast
1: I always enjoyed Meeting users, they always say how much they love your our product and <laughs> always have three or four things they would like us to build for them. Oh, right. Um, I think at heart, I'm a, I'm a builder. I think that's why I decided to be a civil engineer in the first place. And the web gave me another opportunity to build different types of things. Um, but seeing, talking, understanding... Um, People who use the platform every day, and we have a lot of people who made that their full time business today. Mm. So, having contributed to helping realize uh, their dreams, I think is my biggest fulfillment as a company builder uh, to have helped others build their dreams in, this, in the same time.
3: Renault Visage, thank you so much from Eventbrite and Ross Bailey from Appear Here. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you again to my guests, Renaud Visage, founder and CTO of Eventbrite, and Ross Bailey, founder and CEO of Appear Here. The Voom podcast is a Pixiu production for Virgin Media Business. Remember, if you'd like more entrepreneurial content, tips and podcasts, just head to virgin.com, where you'll find loads of articles to sink your teeth into. And if you'd like to get in touch, just use the hashtag #VoomPodcast on Twitter or leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Next time on the VOOM podcast, we'll be exploring the business of dating and connections. See you for that in two weeks time. But for now, from me, Nikki Beatty, and the VOOM podcast team, goodbye. Thank <laughs> you.